welcome to the Inside Rare Diseases monthly podcast from Centergene, where we are on a mission for life-changing answers. I'm your host, Ben Legg, and you may recall from our last couple of episodes, we discussed genetics and the role it plays with rare diseases. We will also be diving into individual rare diseases in the podcast series as we continue on this mission for life-changing answers. And this month, our first episode to go directly inside rare diseases is to ask the question, what's next for amyloidosis? Now, amyloidosis is a difficult to diagnose and very rare disease in which a protein called amyloid builds up in organs. Now, that can lead to very serious health problems and even death. Now, I always think it's best to ask the experts, and we have two very special guests joining us today to help answer our questions. You may recall Professor Peter Bauer, MD, from our earlier episodes. Peter serves as our Chief Medical and Genomic Officer at Centergene and has authored more than 250 peer-reviewed publications in neurogenetics, oncogenetics, cardiogenetics, and sequencing technology. Thank you for joining us once again, Peter. It's always a pleasure to have you join us. Hey, Ben. Hey, everybody. Thank you for uh, this talk, uh, looking forward to dive deep now on, on that topic. I think it's a really fascinating one. So let's see where we start and end up. I'm looking forward to it. It's, it's always a pleasure stealing your time, Peter. So thank you. Our second guest today is the renowned neurologist, Dr. Katrin Hahn. She's the senior physician at Charité Berlin University of Medicine, where she specializes in rare diseases, uh, particularly amyloidosis, as well as polyneuropathy. Now, Katrin serves as the head of the Hereditary Neuropathies and Amyloidosis Research Group, as well as the NeuroAIDS Research Group at Charité. She's a member of a number of prestigious societies, including the International Federation of Clinical Neurophysiology and the International Society of Amyloidosis. You can also find her work published in several top-tier journals, unlocking novel insights into a range of diseases with an increased focus on hereditary transthyretin amyloidosis otherwise known as ATTR, which will be one of our topics today. Thank you so much for joining us, Catherine. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to be here. Thanks for the nice introduction, Ben. I'm looking forward to our chat. Oh, no, I, it, we're very grateful to you. So, uh, look, let's get started with, with the basics. I mean, Catherine, this is your, your dedicated specialty. It, it's better coming from you than from me. How would you describe amyloidosis? So, first of all, I think it's important uh, to emphasize that amyloidosis is not just one disease. It's a spectrum of different diseases. So, it can be either regional, so you have the, the amyloid purples on, on just one spot. But what we are taking care of is patients who suffer from so-called systemic amyloidosis. So they have amyloid fibrils, so deposition of amyloids, so a fibular material um, that's just from a different precursor protein and it just um, established in, in different organs and just leads to organ dysfunctions. So there are all kind of amyloidosis. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned already one of them, TTR. So TTR is an abbreviation for transtyrotin, so a transport protein for vitamin A and a tyroxine, thyroid gland hormone. And it just, you know, yeah, just a special type. But there are also other types um, that are not hereditary and that might be related to the aging process. So like the sister of the hereditary amyloidosis, the Y-type transthyretin amyloidosis. So these are just two different examples for a very broad spectrum. 
Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, understood. Now, thank you for that. That's very clear. And look, to expand on that, just to understand how often we're seeing that, I know both of you have been involved with studies on TTR, ATTR. How prevalent is it? Are, are you seeing a lot in the population? Would you say it's it's rare or, or ultra rare? Like, it, how often do you see it? Yeah, for simplicity, let's just stick with the TTR amri dose. It's the one I, I mentioned uh, before. Uh, so this is a, it's a so-called rare disease. Uh, there is no unified definition for rare diseases in the European Union, we consider a rare disease one to one person is uh, affected out of 2000. So it's definitely rare, but you could also say it's ultra rare. Ultra rare means one patient per 50,000. So considering for for Germany with around 80 million inhabitants, you would say it can be a one in 6,000 that might be a good guess for Germany, but to be honest, we don't know how many patients with hereditary TTR amyloidosis we really have. And Peter, is, is that kind of aligned with what, what you've been seeing in your experience as well? Well, definitely. However, I think you could now ask, so why do we care about this ultra-rare stuff if we do not treat the more common disorders? But I think there again, and uh, we will get there, this this problem these patients have seemed to be more common than the genetic cases we find and therefore it rather has a big shadow that this gets uh, when we look at uh, those patients suffering from and Katrin mentioned that from diseases of aging and uh, therefore we are really particularly interested in the, the commonalities of these rare or ultra rare diseases for me personally it doesn't really matter whether we get into rare or ultra rare it's really that we want to understand what is happening there and this then to take back to uh, our, a larger group of, of patients i think we will touch on that later in this uh, podcast but just it's rare and we have only dozens or maybe a hundred in germany to be identified with the knowledge we have right now mm-hmm. but it doesn't say that this is irrelevant that's really important. You said the the knowledge we have right now, and as I understand it, you know, if let's be specific about ATTR, I understand it's very difficult to diagnose. Why do you think that is? I think one of the main problems is that the symptoms, they can be very unspecific and they can imitate symptoms of so-called common diseases. So from a neurological point of view, patients present with what we call a progressive polyneuropathy. So they get tingling, they get numbness in their feet, but later up to their knee and also in their hands. And after some time, they experience weaknesses, so they can't walk uh, anymore properly. So polyneuropathies is just one of the most common diseases diseases we see as a neurologist and the older the patient get, the more often we see patients with polyneuropathy. So this is one point. Another symptom is a so-called carpal tunnel syndrome. You may have heard from that. So there's a kind of nerve compression on the wrist um, by, by so-called ligamentum. This is something very common in TTR amyloidosis. Um, and another point is that patients are actually quite old for a hereditary disease. You would assume if a disease is hereditary, you develop the symptoms once you are born or maybe in your childhood or in in your use. So this is different in TTR amyloidosis. Patients are quite old uh, in Germany where the disease is sporadic. They are in their 50s, 60s, and sometimes even older in, in their 70s or even way older. This is very uncommon for a hereditary disease. So this makes it difficult to diagnose the disease. So, so what you're saying is the average patient is probably, you know, they're, they're getting a bit older, they go into their, their normal day-to-day a house arts doctor and they go look I've, I've got a sore wrist and they go okay let's have a look at it and it's a misdiagnosis problem is that what you're saying yeah 
that is uh, one example. Like you said, there might be no awareness uh, for the disease. The symptoms are very unspecific. Mm. So it's w relatively easy to misdiagnose the symptoms. Absolutely right. So, I mean, I know it's an, an art as much of a science. Previously, in, in other episodes, Peter and I have been talking about, um, you know, genome sequencing and, and all the ways that we can explore diagnoses. Um, what would the, the pathway be for the physician to, to get that, that diagnosis to check for the, um, the amyloid? I mean, there are different ways. And depending on the, on the symptoms, the, the first doctor who sees the patients, like you said, might be the primary uh, or it might be a cardiologist because it's the hardest. Uh, very often involved, or it might be neurologists, or gastroenterologists, because it's a multisystemic disease. So what doctors normally do, they just they look for an explanation of the symptoms. So I'm a neurologist. From a neurologist uh, point of view, we see the patient. He describes symptoms of a polyneuropathy. We would do a nerve measurement. We would do all the lab work, because you can imagine there are more common reasons for a polyneuropathy than a TTR amyloidosis. A diabetes, for instance, is very common. Alcohol is, is very common or many, many other reasons. So this is what uh, most of the time the neurologist does first. And if he doesn't find anything and the polyneuropathy still progresses, some patients, they they undergo a so-called biopsy. You just uh, take out a small piece of tissue from the nerve or from the muscle. And if you are lucky in terms of TTR amyloidosis, you may see or you may prove the amyloid in the tissue. So this can be the first uh, step that the doctor, the cardiologist for the heart tissue, the neurologist for the nerve or for the muscle tissues, and the gastroenterologist for the colon uh, tissue, that they just pick up the amyloid, and this would be the first suspicion that the patient suffers from a so-called amyloidosis. In knowing the disease and in knowing that it is hereditary, you can also do relatively easy a gene test, of course. You just take a drop of blood uh, and you just look if the patient has a mutation, and Peter may comment on that, in the so-called TTR gene. But very often, this is not the first step, as easy as it seems. Yeah, maybe, yeah, yeah. There are, uh, two comments there. I think you mentioned that, Katrin, and the GP, he would see maybe something that seems to be common and sometimes they think, but uh, something nonetheless is odd. Maybe it's too early, maybe it's so progressive that he doesn't uh, take it to the usual cases where they say, well, sooner or later I will know this is alcohol intoxication. He didn't tell me today, but in the next years I will learn about that. And then he realized, no, it's not the, the fact and he's young and there's these symptoms. And then what for me is always a, a cheap question to ask and very informative is uh, just to say, is there others in your families that have similar symptoms? This is dominant, a dominant disease, and we would expect that we have more than one suffering from something that is not specific, as Katrin said, but is severe symptoms of disorders. It can be uh, rather the heart or the neuropathy. So the uh, neurologists that, that see that, and sometimes it even jumps. Uh, and so you have to uh, as well account for those that have both uh, in the family. But nonetheless, if you have something that is repeatedly seen in a family, I think the, the next step to say, well, could it be genetics? And if genetics involve geneticists to come up with a decent diagnostic scheme is, of course, um, a very successful uh, case management there. And so that that's on, on the clinical side where I think that's something you can learn by asking a simple question. 
if we go in, sorry, yeah, go for no, it. No, no, continue, please. If if we go a step further and say, okay, then uh, someone thought on, on genetics and ask for a test, of course, at the beginning, uh, although we are talking of one gene, the TTR gene, it's probably almost impossible to, to limit it to, to one gene because the symptoms are just affecting an organ mainly, which could be cardiac problems or the polyneuropathy. And for both, we have uh, dozens and hundreds of genes that should be checked. There is uh, a familiar disease, and therefore, sometimes we get uh, from a geneticist uh, to that diagnosis via screening many genes and then coming back with a diagnosis that is surprising because it's rare or ultra rare, but um, it can be found there. Uh, and so uh, that's how I would see the, the, the landscape and, and how we can be more successful in diagnosing these patients. Look, it's it's really interesting to hear. And, and you said something which you and I hadn't discussed before, which is a concept of cheap questions. And I really love that. I've written it down here because, I mean, if in the world of rare diseases, we were able to to sort out, you know, this this diagnostic odyssey that patients are having to go through for so long to try and jump through these hurdles. And there was a list of cheap questions that mm-hmm. we could hand out to first line physicians to go, just let's let's try and jump the queue here. Let's mm-hmm. let's get through your stepwise testing for the next five years to get to the bottom of it. That'd be amazing. I think it's important what, what Peter said. And of course, we have to ask the question, but maybe there's a kind of laziness once the patient gets older. Would you ask the 80-year-old patient if there's a family history? Not every doctor may do that. But I, I think there's one more point where I think it's important. The, the TTR amyloidosis in Germany is sporadic. It's a sporadic disease. So which also means not every patient does have a positive family history. And we do know from uh, scientific evidence, there are different sources that just around a third of the patient who reports, yes, there are other family members who are affected. So um, I think it's important, even if there, when there is no family history, no positive family history, the symptoms, they do fit uh, the, the multisystemic disease, you can consider uh, hereditary TTR amyloidosis. Good point, Katrin, sure. <laughs> so we are still seeing a lot of random mutations that are just coming out, and, and, and then I imagine they get carried, carried on, and it, it is hereditary, so then potentially their children would be a carrier. That, that's the case. If there is really a, a TTR amyloidosis, we would always counsel a, a mutation carrier or a carrier with a pathogenic variant, which I like more as uh, the term, to have a risk of passing that with 50%. And then penetration is as well something we... We have some good observations, but maybe not a very uh, full picture yet, should usually be high, which means it's not wrong what Katrin said, that if you ask an individual whether there is more affected, he will say no. But if you ask a neurologist to do kind of a, a workup on a family where you have identified one and he should do the exam on individuals that have the mutation and have a given age, I think now the question for you, Katrin, uh, how often would you find nothing? Yeah, you are say, right. No, yeah? Not not so often. Good one. Yeah. yeah. So it's just that you would think, yeah, I have a little problems with my feet. Yes, but I'm healthy, he would say. And you would say he is the other one that is probably the carrier of the familiar TTR variant, right? So let's go uh, to Ben. Ben, you are completely right. Um, 
when you are born and you are positive for a TTR mutation, you have the mutation in your genes, obviously. But it's not that kids develop the symptoms. So there are some countries, so Portugal is a good example, where people are relatively young when they develop the symptoms around their 20s, around their 30s, so relatively early. In Germany or in other countries where the disease is sporadic, like we said, patients are way, way older. Uh, and in Germany, you wouldn't test somebody who is underaged for the reasons because the person doesn't develop the symptoms, so you wouldn't mm. treat it. But once a patient is fully aged, you have the possibility, and if there is a, somebody positive in the family, you have the possibility to test this person. So, so sorry, I'm following a thought process here. So if, say, my father had, um, had ATTR, I, we know that I'm a carrier. I'm not of age yet, so I am asymptomatic at this point. But there is a high likelihood that once I hit 50, I will start developing symptoms and, and my quality of life will go down. Is this something that's, that's um, is there, you know, treatment or preventative treatment available for, for carriers who, who are not yet suffering? Is, is there technology for that yet? Or is that something on the horizon? No, we do not have a treatment that prevents the, the disease uh, this is not possible right now. But even though if you are an asymptomatic carrier and you might be 30 or in your 40s, and we know you have a mutation where the symptoms start maybe around 50, we would follow up you very closely because we know the earlier we treat patients, the better is the outcome. Uh -huh. So there would be a benefit on your side, definitely. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Maybe, Katrin, sorry, because we, we have not even introduce the treatment maybe you should spend a couple of words how the the world changed uh, for you in the last years with the molecular treatment yeah that's a that's a good point because i think this was actually for many physicians the the breaking point because it's always nice to know uh, the the underlying ideology of of a disease mm -hmm. but to treat it uh, makes makes a huge difference so let's just go one step back for TTR. I already mentioned it's a transport protein. It's mainly produced in the liver, around 95% are produced there, and to a very small percentage also in the eye and in special structures of, of the brain. Uh, so the liver transplantation actually was the first treatment we could offer those patients, but it's already quite some time ago. So now we have so-called gene-modifying treatments that do actually the same like the liver transplantation. So there are different options just to knock down or to decrease the production of TTR in the liver. And once the protein is produced... It's there like, like a so-called tetramere or in easier terms, like a glover, like a glover leaf. But this glover leaf is somehow very instable and just dissociates into the, in, into the single leaves and they misfold uh, and just aggregate to amyloid fibrils. And we have other medications that just try to keep the glover leaf into form. So right now we have four different medications that are approved. So one is a medication, to, so tafamidis, to 
uh, keep the glover leaf in form. So we call it tetramere stabilizer. And the other treatments uh, we have is uh, gene modifying treatments. So one group are the so-called gene uh, silencer. So you just knock out the gene or the so-called messenger RNA and just uh, keep the gene from translating into, into a protein. So this is, uh, we have two different options for that. And the other one is, is what we call an, an antisense uh, strategy or antisense treatment, which results in the same so, so-called degradation of the messenger RNA with the result that the TTR protein is not translated anymore or just to a very, very small amount, so around 20% compared to 100. That's incredible. So we've actually got something with multiple treatments. I mean, so often we talk about rare diseases where there's nothing. It, it might be 10, 15, 20 years away. And there's actually options here. Absolutely. It's actually quite fascinating also for us as treating physicians. You can offer the, the patient different treatments. You can discuss the pro and cons of the different treatments and just uh, decide together, depending on the stage where the patient is presenting which one to choose. So I think it's, it is really great. And like I said, it was a kind of ground uh, break. I just changed uh, the awareness and increased the awareness, but it's also a responsibility. We have to look out for those patients. We have to diagnose them earlier. We have to use earlier gene testing, uh, for instance, and we simply have to be aware for, for those kind of diseases. Definitely right. And what's the difference been that you've seen with, with patients? Is this is this completely brought back the quality of life? I mean, what has the effect been? Uh, with the treatment? Yeah, the I mean the, the treatment they differ in, in terms in terms of their, their outcome and the way they uh, influence the disease and um, but we do have the first treatments that not only slow down the disease progression. Uh, but also put it on hold and sometimes even reverse. And this is very fa fascinating. And and like I said, it's of course not the same result if, if somebody is already in a very progressed stage of disease, maybe not uh, able to walk uh, anymore, has to use crutches, uh, compared to somebody who is only very slightly uh, affected or impaired. Uh, so this is something that is possible right now. That's amazing. I mean, so often we hear these terrible, terrible stories, and it's really nice to hear these, you know, little little starlight in the dark night sky of hope and going, you know what, guys, this is this is moving in the right direction. This is the future. We're living in the 21st century, and, and all of these advances are, are, are incredible. Um, Peter, has, has this been the same in your experience? You, you've seen, you know, this with yeah. your patients? Honestly, I, I have not seen the patients. I just have to diagnose them, and therefore I'm always fascinated to be part of this success. But but maybe, Katrin, I can ask you now, in principle, it's a mechanism that gets a molecular uh, inhibition uh, and therefore helps the patient not to develop kind of the, the amyloid uh, deposits. Do you think there is a bigger picture where even the genetic forms are kind of the groundbreaking discoveries, but we can enlarge what has been studied and learned there for a, a larger population that has other amyloid problems in principle. Where's the limits? Just to, to give as well our, our followers an example, what is probably not to be expected from, from the learnings here. 
Um, I think it's, it's, it's different levels of question. Um, I think what the TTR amyloidosis is often called a kind of model disease for the understanding and also for the for the treatments that are available right now, especially for the for the gene treatments. So we do have antisense treatments or SI RNA treatments also for other hereditary diseases. Uh, so this is something, like I said, it's, it's like a like a model disease. And what is also very fascinating is that uh, just to stick with the amyloidosis and maybe other subtypes of amyloidosis, that you see a development of, I, I mean, what we do right now is we give the patient a treatment with the expectation that the instable TTR is not produced in this large amount anymore, but the production is not zero. So it will be depending on the medication, maybe around 15 to, to, to 20%. So there's still some TTR produced. And like I said, we can only start once the patient has developed symptoms, which automatically means that there is already some amyloid in the tissue. And we were often asked if there is a possibility for a treatment to get the already deposited amyloid out of the tissue. And we do not have a treatment like that. But if you look maybe to another subtype of amyloidosis, the AL amyloidosis. So this is a disease that where patients get treated by hematologists. There are already medical trials with so-called antibodies, where they use antibodies that stick to the amyloid, just help the amyloid to get out of the disease, just to put it in easy, in easy terms. Um, and this is something that is very promising, and some maybe we will also use it in TTR. It's not in clinical trials yet, but just to look in the future, this is something that might be even possible in, in other subtypes independent of AL and maybe even for TTR. I don't know yet. Maybe since then, of course, the accurate genetic diagnosis is important, and we have uh, not always uh, certainty about uh, the genotype being responsible for the phenotype. I think we, we should as well a little bit touch on whether there's cases that uh, we have to do more. We discussed a lot uh, these patients that have the symptoms but do not have the known mutations, but very rare ones not yet characterized ones, which we call variants of uncertain significance. And there is on the one side, I think, a lot of ambiguity and uh, uncertainty. What What is the best approach? So the treatment is not, is of course, expensive. It's uh, an intervention where you have to balance uh, the, the, the odds. But Katrin, would you think that if we have these, I think at least families that have a clear phenotype and uh, a genetic that is not yet so clear like the, the phenotype, would it be uh, possible to do a treatment just to as well show that the variant is in fact something we should classify as a TTR pathogenic variant or is that something we can't do because the risks of treating is too high there or maybe as well impossible because we don't get access to the drugs? Is that something uh, kind of a functional test of the, the variants we cannot classify different yeah, to be honest, I I wouldn't do, I mean, we have this proof of concept, if you would call it like that, with the treatment, we, we have it with other diseases, but most mm -hmm. of the time with diseases where we would expect a relatively fast treatment response, let's say in four um, weeks or maybe half a year. This is nothing we would expect in patients with TTR amyloidosis. But even though, I mean, we, there's another awareness, uh, do the testing more often, and it's just a question of time that yeah. you uh, recognize more and more mutations that are so-called, like you, you just mentioned, 
variants of unknown significance, and we also do have the patients in, in our cohort. So you have to be very, very certain that TTR is the underlying etiology. So what we do in those patients, we do a very detailed diagnostic workup just to exclude other etiologies. And we also look for the amyloid because if we find the amyloid in the heart for patients where the heart is affected, maybe in a heart biopsy or on a nerve or in the muscle, and we can't find anything else that might explain the symptoms, we would say the phenotype, the amyloid and the exclusion of other ideologies. This, in my opinion, would be sufficient to say, yeah, we do believe that this is a pathogenic uh, mutation and then we would treat the patients. I, I'm hearing it a lot and I need I need to ask the question. I, I'm aware of time, so I, I don't want to um, take too much more of you guys' time, but I, I need to ask. Amyloids. My previous, um, I guess, um, interaction with amyloids was actually around Alzheimer's disease. Um, is, is there a link there or am I making a false connection between, between the two? Can, can, are they related? Can one lead to the other? Uh, is, is there a relationship at all? Um, there is no relationship. I mean, Alzheimer is also a kind of amyloidosis, but we do not treat patients with Alzheimer in, in our amyloidosis center. But it's a it's a different, I, I said the amyloid has to develop out of a, what we call precursor protein. So for TTR amyloidosis, it's obviously TTR, the transport protein I mentioned. Mm-hmm. For Alzheimer, it's so-called APP, so amyloid precursor protein. So first of all, it's different proteins. Second, in Alzheimer's disease, the amyloid fibrils, they mainly deposit in the brain in a special region of the brain. So you could say it's a kind of regional amyloidosis, but we do not treat those patients in our center. Fair enough. No, totally. I um, I always feel better to ask the stupid questions because I'm sure somebody else listening will be also asking it. So <laughs> thank you. No, no. Yeah. Sorry, Peter, you were going to say? No, no, just uh, it, it's not a stupid question. I think it's really important to, to see that we are talking on, on a mechanism that is not good for our tissues, which is uh, these proteins, they stick together, they aggregate and they cause stress and destruction. But it's not always the same protein and therefore uh, we just call it amyloids because they have a given histochemical commonality which the pathologist will then tell uh, similar observations in the microscope but mm-hmm. doesn't mean that it's always similar mechanisms that lead to this uh, picture that is then seen and there there's of course a link but uh, uh, as Catherine said the, the commonalities if you want to treat it in a molecular mechanistic way <laughs> they often end early and then uh, I would as well expect that we need Diff, uh, very different approaches for these very severe sometimes uh, than as well similar diseases because you would say well there is sometimes as well problems in the brain for for TTR amyloidosis patients but they have more than classical Alzheimer patient who has predominantly the the disease in in these pre brain er- areas that lead to the cognitive decline we, we know as Alzheimer's. Mm, no, that makes sense. Thank you for that, both of you. So look, as you both are aware, you know, the, uh, the, the mission, I guess, of, of, of what we want to be doing is we're looking for life-changing answers for, for, for patients, um, which, you know, is obviously a, a very long chain in terms of family and physicians and treatment and, and thus. The, the question I want to, to, to leave you with um, but before we, we finish our recording today Today, is what would be the, um, the, the, the one 
takeaway or one thing that you'd want to be able to say to a physician or a medical student or a patient or their family about ATTR that, that might help? I mean, my guess um, for you, Peter, is it might be ask the cheap question. Um, w- mm-hmm. Would that be fair? Well, at least that should be uh, on the repertoire because it's an easy one. On top, I would say don't neglect it as is always with rare or ultra rare diseases. The, the dimension you have and the impact you can have is just huge. And uh, I have never seen this uh, this variability or this variety of tech therapeutic approaches, which really inspires as well to to find different uh, diseases that can follow this role model. So for, for me, it's a, a breakthrough and it's so important because it's just happening uh, and others will come that have similar, has used similar pathways. So that's for me uh, really a big learning and uh, as well inspiration. Over to you, Katrin. Peter, this was just a, such a nice summary already. There is nothing to add from, from my side. I think it's most of all, it's awareness. You have to know those diseases and you you simply have to think about them whenever you are in, in, in your office and you can ask the question is there are there affected family members but I'm quite confident that we will use genetic testing in the future on an even more low level like we do right now especially for diseases where we have treatments where we can offer the patient treatments mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you think that's going to become even more prevalent just almost yeah. in day to day yes Definitely. Yeah. Well, I, I certainly hope that's the case and I, I look forward to it because uh, the more we can do, the better. Well, look, um, thank you so much to both of you, Catherine and Peter, for, for joining us today and, and sharing your, your insights, your expertise just absolutely shines a giant spotlight on this stuff for, for, for all of our listeners. And this is unbelievably complex. And I think that both of you have a real gift for, for making it um, simple and, and understandable. And I know I really appreciate it and our team does and our listeners appreciate it. So thank you so much to you both. You're welcome. Thank you too. Well, um, that concludes this month's episode of the Inside Rare Diseases monthly podcast from Centrogene, where we are on a mission for life-changing answers. I'm your host, Ben Legg, and today we were going inside rare diseases and asking what's next for amyloidosis. Join us next month for the next episode of our podcast as we continue on our mission for life-changing answers. I hope that today's episode helped you see inside rare diseases a little clearer today. And if it did, well, you can help us help to raise awareness by telling a friend. I hope you join us for our next episode. So until then, thank you for listening.